Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for joining us. The, uh, the German-American philosopher Leo Strauss once famously wrote, he actually wrote a lot of famous things. I want to caution myself to say he famously wrote. But Strauss once mentioned uh, that when you read books, one of the important things to take note of is not simply what the book says, but what the book does to the person who reads it. And certainly that is true for many books that we read, books that have a great historicity, books that have um, a great deal of depth and weight to them. What they do to us is often as important as what the book actually says to us. How you feel when you're reading something is certainly at least as important, if not more important, than what you're actually reading. And that's often the difference between a book that's worthy of actually reading and giving it your time, as opposed to the kind of book that you, you read at best half-heartedly, or maybe you don't even finish. You open a book up, and within a few brief moments, you're immediately touched or not touched. You have this sense of this book is going to make me feel something, or this book won't make me feel something. As uh, Thank God as I've gotten older in life. One of the unfortunate elements of getting older is a sense that you've seen and heard almost everything, which is unfortunate when you either put the TV set on or time was when you watched the movie in a movie theater. Within the first few moments that a movie was on, you'd had a sense like, oh, that was like this movie, that was like that movie I saw. In other words, the lack of freshness, the lack of a sense that this is saying something to me that I haven't felt before is an unfortunate and painful experience. Which, if I can say to you, is not the kind of experience you have when you read great books. Because each and every time you read it, no matter how many times you've read it, it makes you feel something different because you are not the same person that you were the last time you read those words. And that's the difference between great literature and just literature. What I want to say to you is that what Strauss wrote is also very applicable to the Torah, to biblical literature. Because the Torah is not just a book with voices in it. The Torah is a book of voices. Meaning that within all 22 books of the Hebrew Bible, that there is a constellation of voices. Now I realize that in the eyes of some, that this is a controversial idea that in the eyes of a certain very traditional reading, that there is only one voice to be found in the Bible, and that is the voice of God. I have to admit to you, that's not my opinion. My opinion is that, that, that the Torah, not just the five books of Moses, but beyond that, all 22 books, is a multitude of voices. And that multitude of voices has something important to say to us. I want to give you some examples. There is, for example, different voices about the idea of time. We have the idea of time that is presented to us in Rosh Hashanah from the Torah itself, where every year, every year, that the calendar is renewed, a linear sense of time, a beginning, and then it keeps moving forward. In opposition to that, of course, are the famous words from the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, 
where in Kohelet, Sefer Kohelet, Ecclesiastes writes that there is nothing new under the sun, that the seasons come and change and turn and turn, one over the other again. In other words, that there are two different voices about the notion of time. One, that there's a sense of things moving over and over again, an act of repetition, repeating itself. Whereas in the Torah, we have this idea of things moving forward, always moving forward. A calendar, one is added on top of the other. There are different ideas about God. In the book of Exodus, well, allow me to say this, that the God in the book of Exodus is not the God in the book of Deuteronomy, to be sure. The God in the book of Exodus is the God of a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. A God who seems or appears itself to be. A God who physically interacts with nature and the world. The God is the one who parts seas, brings hail and plagues. God is the one who churns the water that drowns Pharaoh's soldiers. And God is also the one whose mighty hand and outstretched arm takes the Israelites out of Egypt, separating the waters of the, of the Red Sea, creating a wall on both left and right for the Israelites to pass through. That's the God of Exodus. However, this morning in our, to in our Torah, the book of the Torah that we're reading, Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, that kind of God couldn't be more different or distinct or distant from what we read and that is the God of Deuteronomy is the God of, as we read, Mima'on Katshecha, that God dwells up most high. The God is not imminent, close to me, but God is transcendent, very distant. It's interesting to note, I just want to pause, how you see these ideas of God, these competing ideas, voices. You see them in religious architecture. For example, if you go to um, synagogues that are small and they have low ceilings and tight spaces, there's a sense of everything being very close to you, physically pressing upon you, a sense of the imminence or closeness of God. And then you have religious places of religious worship, not just synagogues, but let's take, for example, this beautiful sanctuary. We have a wide room, and we have 40-foot ceilings. This past uh, winter, which feels like an eternity ago because I traveled, <laughs> but we were in Paris, and we weren't able to go into, uh, into the Notre Dame because they were doing extensive renovations for the fire damage, but I took Lisa and the kids. We went to Sacre-Cœur, and Sacre-Cœur is also a classic representation of a transcendent God, a God who is very far and distant from us, because we have these massive vaulted ceilings and this huge open area of a sanctuary where nothing feels close to you. And in fact, what it does, it makes you feel very, very small. And so even in our religious architecture, we have different voices about how we see God, the God of Exodus or the God of Deuteronomy. But the one thing that's interesting is where there is not a constellation of voices is the idea of prayer. In fact, surprisingly, shockingly enough, is that in all five books of the Torah, arguably, there is no representation of prayer. And maybe, actually, that might be an extreme suggestion. There are but a few 
perhaps, perhaps, hints a few. One is the famous Birkat Kohanim. It's the priestly blessing. But that is more of an, of a, of an act of imploring God to be kind to us. And there are no specific requests in the Birkat Kohanim. Indeed, I recognize that the rabbis interpret each of the words as having specific requests to them. But let's just focus on the words themselves where we ask God for blessing and peace and countenance and light and goodness. Let's just see it as that, that those are broad descriptive terms of what we would consider to be a life filled with goodness and peace. But apart from that, there is maybe one other suggestion about prayer. I want to share it with you this morning because it comes from our Torah portion. This Parsha, Parsha Shoftim, has much to it. But in one of the underanalyzed or appreciated elements of it is the section dealing with when the Israelites have to go to war. And there are a number of different laws regarding. Maimonides writes about it extensively in his Code of Law. But when the Israelites were about to go out to battle, this is what we read. That the Kohen Meshuach the Milchama, that this priest who was almost like a chaplain for the army, that he would say to the assembled troops as follows Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, that you are drawing close to battle against your enemies. Al Yerach Levavachem. Do not allow your hearts to be soft. Al tiri, and do not fear. The al tach pezu, and do not fear that you have to run. The al ta'arutsu mipnehem, and do not flee from before them. Interestingly, the Abar Brunel, a medieval commentator, says that this is an allusion to the prayer of the Shema. That the Kohen, Mashuach the Milchama, that this chaplain, that he would lead the troops in the recitation of the Shema. It always seemed to me that the position that the Shema has amongst the Jewish people is deserved. And that is to say that wherever you go in the Jewish world, that if there is one prayer that many people know, it is the Shema. I know this from personal experience. I have the, I think, enviable position that when I'm in the sanctuary, my stender, my bima, unlike the cantors, I face the congregation. And that gives me a perspective on what people know and what they don't know what in fact draws people or what closes them away, what proves to be of interest or what disinterests them. And almost universally, be it on a, on a holiday morning, on a Shabbat morning, on a morning when we may have bar and bat mitzvah filled with people who are not members of the congregation, and I can see people who aren't holding a sidor, who are perhaps, yes, this is a secret, talking during the service. But when the Shema is recited, what do I see? People cover their eyes and they say the words. People know these words. And so the position of the Shema as being the penultimate Jewish prayer, 
by tradition the hope that every Jew should be able to, to recite the Shema before they die. And as someone who has stood at the bedside of people who are about to die, if people can't say the Shema by themselves, it is the obligation of the rabbi to say it for them. When I was a teenager at the age of 15 on my first trip to Israel, we were brought to a mikvah in Tzfat, the mikvah of the Ari. And we are told that one of the merits of people who go into this mikvah is that before they die, that they will merit being able to say the Shema by themselves. That mikvah was so cold that at least could be the merit, the reward for going into that mikvah. But the Shema deserves that position because the Shema, in my opinion, is a truly Jewish prayer. Think carefully what it says. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, Adonai Elohinu, that this God that we call Adonai is our God. And Adonai is Echad, is one. There is nothing else, nothing competing. Beyond the singularity of that message of singularity is a deeper idea. Because the Shema is not a prayer to God. The Shema is a prayer to ourselves. We ask when we pray to become something better. On the cusp of war, as people are about to engage in difficult, trying, violent moments, we hope that we can avoid the words of Nietzsche who wrote in the Principles of Truth, number 124, that when you pursue a monster, take care not to become a monster yourself. In our own lives, when we say the Shema, we should think that we're not saying it to God. We should remind ourselves that we are saying it to ourselves because when you pray, you should not be the same person you were at the end of the prayer than you were at the beginning of the prayer. We should be something different. We should be something better. I pray that we will be. Shabbat Shalom.